Kids of all ages are climbing through the castles of Europe, imagining they're under attack a thousand years ago, back when Europe was in the feudal ages and everybody was fighting everybody. Well, we can bring meaning to those castles, and that's what we're doing today. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Martin Delandovitz from Northern Wales, where I think the greatest concentration of great castles are anywhere in Europe. Martin, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Rick. First time I met you, you were a guide at Carnarvon Castle. That's true, and I still am. You still do the work. I still do the work. So what's it like? Uh, you take Carnarvon, which there's a lot of great castles, but Carnarvon has uh, got to be one of the best castles in Europe. First of all, tell me why you would work in Carnarvon. What's special about Carnarvon? I think, I mean, all right, it's got its association. It's the place where Prince Charles was crowned Prince of Wales. But if you take it as a medieval castle, pure and simple, it's the most expensive castle ever built by a king of England. And it's a great building. It's one of the rare castles that does not only, uh, how can one say, military stuff, but it also does art. It's a great piece of architecture. It's got aesthetics, doesn't it? There's uh, stylish stripes built into yeah. the stonework and, yeah. and uh, beautiful corners. And uh, first, let's put it in the broader picture here. We're talking about northern Wales. And there's so many castles in North Wales, and they were not built by the Welsh. They were built by an invading force, weren't they? Yeah, the best known are. They're built at the order of Edward I. Now, your listeners may recognize him better as Longshanks from the film Braveheart. Ah. And Edward I, just as he was severe in Scotland, so he was severe in Wales. And he adopted that John Wayne-esque philosophy of moving west into territory that became hostile and building forts as he went. And that's why you have so many. So the English moved west. They took over Wales. They had some, uh, you could call them insurgents, I guess, couldn't you? Yes. And the local people couldn't be shocked and awed by this English, uh, you know, military might. So Edward had to establish little, um, what do you call it, toeholds in in England. And he would have, each castle would have a, a garrison town with it. Yeah. I mean, they call them Bastide in France. You know them from the Dordogne. Uh, it's the same idea. You're building a frontier outpost. And to make a comparison with John Wayne isn't out of order. The English people that came to live in those towns really were frontiers people. They came and lived amongst hostiles. They had to live within fortifications. That's right. And did they bribe them to go there? Because it must have been miserable. I mean, Wales is not your ideal paradise anyways, if you are <laughs> an Englishman. Let's put it this, you're an Englishman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Middle Ages, they're getting a bunch of English people to go move to live in the middle of a bunch of angry Welsh people. Yeah. You know, how did they encourage the English settlers to go over there and subjugate these Welsh? Well, very much as they attempted the, was to settle the frontier in the U.S., what they did was said, hey, we'll give you a great deal. You can live in this land rent-free for 10 years, and for a low rent thereafter, come and live here, come and settle. And picture those people back home in England in relative security, the man and wife sitting down, talking about it, and say, yep, we're going to do it. And they sell up, and they move. So they sell their house in, in London or whatever, and they move out to the Wild West, yeah. and they're promised uh, land? Yes, land to farm, land to build a house on. As long as they don't get uh, killed by the angry Welsh. Yeah, that, that didn't happen as much as, as one would think. It's very much, if how can one say... I'm sure we're going to touch on this. What you had was a change in regime. Edward I became their new lord. The rules, the laws stayed the same. They didn't alter. Okay, so in northern Wales, we've got, what's it called, the the Iron Ring or something like that? Yeah, they call Edward the five big castles, and it was called the Iron Fist, one for each finger. When I met you at Carnarvon, what I was so impressed by was how you brought to life what a castle was all about. So let's forget any particular castle. Let's just talk castle life. First of all, castles evolved from this Mott and Bailey business. Tell me the Mott and Bailey thing. Right, what happens is William the Conqueror, William the Norman, the Duke of Normandy, conquers England in 1066, and he brings with him 
the habit of castle building. And he brought a ready kit form castle on a mound of earth, you built a wooden tower. And the first castles built in Britain were built at the order of William the Conqueror, and they were largely quick castles, mound of earth, wooden tower. Mound of earth, wooden tower. And yeah. the mound of earth is called a... A mot. A mot. Now, the bailey would be the, the equivalent of the garrison town. That's right, the yard at the bottom, if you like, an enclosed The there. yard, with a stockade around it. That's right, yes. So the green zone. Yes, if you like, that's a good way of putting it. Okay, so Mutt and Bailey. So the original castle design, a man-made mound so you can see the enemy and you can be above the spears and a, a wooden tower. Yeah. And as people got more sophisticated, uh, sometimes they would take a mound of vert that was already there, build it on a, on a hilltop or something, and then instead of a wooden tower, it would be a stone tower. And we have the Bailey, the garrison town, uh, with stone walls. Now you've got the advent of cannon. When cannon comes in, you have a different philosophy of defense, don't you? That's right. And that's the evolution of castles. Stone came about because, of course, people burn wooden towers, don't they? So, right. So that they build them in stone. And then castles, medieval castles evolved. But the canon, let's say the canon really begins to affect things, let's say, from just after 1400 onwards. You have to change things totally. And there's nowhere better to see this in Europe because, and I know I'm talking later, but as Napoleon moves through Europe, Right. Then, of course, that's really in the time of cannons. You see castles in the Napoleonic Age, but they are hunkering down that's instead right. of standing tall. Yeah. A standing tall castle is oppressive if you are dealing with people before cannon. That's right. But if you're standing tall with cannon, it's just like uh, you're just open to be uh, slaughtered with those cannonballs. Yeah. And where is it? It's Ehrenberg, isn't it? In, uh, oh, Ehrenberg uh, yeah. in, in Germany. Yeah, you see it nowhere better, that evolution towards towards cannon. And so often... Oh, you're, no, you're thinking Aaron Brightson. Am I? Aaron Brightson on the Rhine, it's a it's a 19th century castle, maybe. Right. I don't know, but it's it's low because they were worried about the artillery. That's right. If you're building a medieval castle and you're concerned about people throwing things at you, I understand a round turret is stronger than a square turret. Yes, if, if you're dealing with simple machinery. Also, if you, if you do the sums, you build less wall to enclose the same area if you're building round to square. And is it true that it's harder to knock the corner off of a... Yeah, if, there, if you want to weaken the, the structure of a castle, knock the corner off of, of an edge and you've uh, right. compromised the whole structure. But if it's circular, it's tougher to crack that egg. Exactly, and the egg is a perfect example again. And then they would undermine castles too by just... That's right. if, if you couldn't break the wall, you could burrow down and, and take away the foundation so the wall would fall on its own. Is that right? The way to attack a castle is either go through the walls, so let's make the walls thick, or you go over the walls, so let's make the walls high. So when you arrive at a good, well-built castle, it's got very thick, very high walls, and that's the reason. Now, as you say, cannon change that. They're big, high towers that are easy targets for a cannon, so make them lower. Pack them with earth so that they're resilient, resistant to Thick that. walls, pound thick. away forever on yeah, it, and yeah. it won't break through. Do we get this word undermine from digging under castles and having the wall yeah. fall? Yeah, the, the, the miners would be set in and they undermine. dig under. Undermine. Fascinating. Rheinfeld's castle, not Nuremberg. Oh, Rheinfeld's, that's yeah, right. Yeah, it is, that's it is that combination yeah. of medieval and... Uh, now, let's talk about the life in a castle. You know, the, the lord of the castle, he's going to be a, a relatively wealthy, comfortable guy. Mm -hmm. uh, do they have running water? they have heat? they have toilets? Yes. In the Middle Ages? That surprises you, but true, yes. Tell me about the plumbing of the middle-aged uh, castle. Well, uh, I, I know of two examples. I'll do, I'll do it generally. What you would have, you'd have a, a well, 
And then you have a header tank, and somebody would pull water, pour it into the header tank, and then lead piping would take water ah. through the castle. So the workhorses, the, the worker class, would, mm. would draw water out of the well and then fill up a big reservoir, and gravity would then give the castle right. wandering water. That's right. And the, uh, the noble and his lady would have a faucet, actually, and have water coming? We don't have any survival of faucets, but we know that they're lead piping and running water running through castles, which is, is quite a remarkable thing. when you know, Now, lavatories, yes, as well. And uh, Eltz is one of your favorite castles. Bergeltz in yeah, Germany. In Germany. Mosel River. Yeah. And, and they have flushing lavatories there, but toilets there, don't they? Generally, the uh, toilets hang in a room over the edge, right? That's generally true, yes. So it's just, just Stri- drop it into under the enemy. Which makes it very interesting to think about swimming the moat, doesn't it? <laughs> I bet it does. I bet it does. Now, there was uh, four-poster beds. When tourists love these four-poster beds, we pay 30 bucks a night extra to have a four-poster bed and a bed and breakfast, you know. Mm. That four-poster bed had an original practical purpose, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, again, they're quite late. They're, they're late medieval to post-medieval, and what you do is you have curtains around the four-post, you draw the curtains, and then you're kept warmer because you build your own little tent in the middle of a room. So you don't need to heat so much. I mean, right. given the realities of no general heating, you would space heat and you'd create a smaller space. That's right. Now, castles, all castle rooms have fireplaces so that you get heat from that. But if you want to be even warmer, a nice curtained-off bed, it's great. If you're into this romantic medieval castle kind of life, there are these um, tacky, touristy um, medieval folk banquets. Yes, there are. Tell me about those, because Wales is famous for those. That's right. Um, What it is, people dress up in a version of medieval, and they sing you songs and feed you food. I love them, and that's me. Uh, I think they're great because you just suspend disbelief. You just have a very good time. You hear some good singing. You eat some good food. You enjoy yourself in the company of others. In the case of Wales, you've got good singing because you have the wenches playing the harps and singing, as they did in the Middle Ages. That's right. It's uh, people it's criticize schmaltzy. it's schmaltzy. schmaltzy. It's not authentic. It's not. Of course, it's not authentic. It's it's 21st century. You're eating with your fingers and a bib and a dagger, and you're drinking mead and you're listening to harp music with a lot of tourists. But you're in a castle. Who couldn't enjoy it? That's great. Now there's a, a lot of different folk banquets that would give you the cliches of the of the local food and drink. You'll hear stories, uh, you know, the, the master of ceremonies in a Welsh castle will be uh, making jokes about the English visitors and the mm. Scottish visitors and the Irish visitors. Mm. It's fun. You get that local pride worked into the, uh, the, the cabaret show. Yeah, you do. You do that. That, that lovely family called Britain, eh? Tell me about the, the family called Britain. Well, Britain itself is uh, England, Wales, and Scotland. And, of course, it's like any family. It has these bitter arguments and disagreements so that the jokes are at the expense of the others, aren't they? The English tell jokes at the expense of the Scots and the Welsh, and the Welsh tell jokes at the expense of the English. Well, probably the most modest and, um, and talented and courageous would be the Welsh. Uh, listen, to date, 54 million Englishmen, or people, to date, two and a half million Welsh people. I mean, come on, we're small. We're small. I mean, we started with nothing, and we still got most of it, but it's, it's, it's a great country. Two and a half million Welsh, yeah. 50-some million English. Yeah. And your culture is strong. It is strong. Where I, where I come from, it's very strong. Are people still speaking the language, or is that just a relic of the past? No, where I come from, over 90% of the people use it as an everyday language. Really? So oh, when, yeah. you, when you walk down the street, people are speaking Welsh first? Yes. Is that more now than a generation ago, or the same, or what? It's the same where I come from. Now, in other parts of Wales, southeast Wales in particular, where you get the greatest population, Welsh is on the rise. But where I've come from, it's, it's always been 
It just hasn't. It's so far away from England, nobody bothered with it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about castles, and a good place to learn about castles is in the north of Wales. We're joined by Martin Delandovitz, who lives in North Wales, and he is the tour guide for perhaps the greatest castle in all of Britain, Carnarvon Castle. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're checking out the castles. And I'll tell you, when you get into those castles, a little background helps you bring those castles to life. Then with a little imagination, you're under attack a thousand years ago in Portugal or Scotland or Norway or wherever you're traveling. Barbara is calling from Bothell in Washington. Barbara, thanks for your call. Oh, you're my pleasure. Do you have a question or a comment for Martin about castles? Well, I was in Wales last summer and spent the night in Conway and thoroughly enjoyed crawling around and through Conway Castle. Good to hear. Did you have a local guide while you were at the castle? No. Because uh, I, I was struck at, at Conway Castle how there's these retired gentlemen who know all the history and they hang out at the entryway and they love to take you around. Well, there was uh, one of the gentlemen up on the, one of the guard houses yeah, did they for the entry. Quite talkative. Very talkative, answered some great questions. The castle's pretty well bare. There's no ceiling on it, but the walls are very intact. And they've got a chain around there to keep you from toppling off, of course. Right. But you can crawl up on the walls. You can overlook the whole town. Now, that's a great chance to look at one of those medieval garrison towns. You're looking out from Conway Castle, seeing this grid-plan, rectangular military town that survives to this day and is a great place to use as a home base for northern Wales exploration. I stay in a wonderful B&B there, and you can actually walk the entire wall around the city still. Martin, Conway is similar to Carnarvon that way, isn't That's right. It? I mean, the thing, uh, listening to your conversation, that people walk around these castles today and they see them bare, and as you rightly said, Barbara, there's no roof on the thing, and that roof came off that castle 400 years ago. Now, you only have to imagine your own home with a roof off for 400 years to think that what we're seeing is only what's left. And uh, I know that one of Rick's favorite castles in uh, Switzerland is Chillon. And if you ever get the chance, Barbara, you go there because it has all its plaster and all its paint from that time. Now, here's the interesting thing. I won't bore you with the details, but the same man that painted the walls of Chillon Castle painted the walls of Conway Castle. So if you do that, all the roofs, floors, ceilings, paint and plaster from 700 and odd years ago, that is exactly how Conway Castle looked. So 700 years ago, we're talking Switzerland and Wales. The same artists and architects and engineers were traveling around in this international Latin-speaking community building all of the great castles of Europe. That's right. And it's it's interesting to think. The story is Edward I goes down to uh, Savoy, sees the castle, likes it, and borrows the architect, borrows the interior decorator. And it was a commodity that he wanted. He wanted their skill. He wanted their design and their flair. And that's something that you can go and appreciate today in different countries. You can walk in the footsteps of medieval interior decorators if you want to. (laughs) As long as the roof stayed on. Well, yeah. Yes, that's that's the thing, isn't it? All right. Barbara, thanks for your comment. Well, thank you. You bet. Gail's on the line in Harwood Heights, Illinois. Gail, thanks for your call. Hi. Hi. Got any castle stories? Yes. When we uh, went to Germany in 2007, uh, we went along the Rhine, and we stayed at Berg Reichenstein, which is supposedly a haunted castle. The story goes that a robber baron, in order to save the lives of his nine sons, was beheaded 
and then the king saved the lives of his sons, and supposedly he haunts the castle to this day. But we didn't see him when we were there. Did you actually sleep there? Yes, we did. You slept yes. in a haunted castle? Yes. With your loved ones? Yes. <laughs> and nothing was, happened? It was fantastic. The rooms were great. They had a knight with armor, but missing the head in the hallway. <laughs> they were milking <laughs> this thing. You know what's interesting to me, Gail, is that these castles are owned by noble families in a lot of cases, but they've got the reality of 21st century living. they got to pay taxes. they got to renovate the place. The government requires them to keep the uh, facade or whatever, and it's tough for them to make ends meet. And a lot of them will let the castle be used by a hotel or they'll make it into a guest house themselves, or in some cases the castle just goes derelict. Uh, Martin, do you have any thoughts on, on sleeping in castles on the Rhine or, or this struggle that castles have to stay out of mothballs? Yeah, I mean, this is a, it starts in the 19th century, doesn't it, when people are looking back to a golden past. The romantic age. Inventing their history. And people spend fortunes are spent on these castles recreating the past. And today you can benefit from that. You can stay in them. As a matter of fact, I find that the better castles, the very best castle, my favorite, is on the Mosul River that comes into the Rhine. It's sort of the little sister of the Rhine. But all the dramatic castles that people want to check out, most of them are on the Rhine. Remember that those castles were destroyed, I believe, by one of the French kings, sort of preventatively. Just France had the upper hand. Louis the Fourteenth, yeah. They Louis the Fourteenth, and he just destroyed all the castles on the Rhine except for one, Marksburg, because he didn't want uh, later age for the people up there to have castles from which to launch an attack on his realm. I guess many of them have been rebuilt in the nineteenth century during the Romantic age when people were reassessing the medieval past, and they would have these overbuilt castles. And many of the castles we look at today are built in a fanciful, over-the-top way. And we tourists think that's the way it was, but it didn't have quite so many turrets, and it wasn't quite so fanciful. Mm. And a lot of people built castles from scratch in a romantic way, like Mad King Ludwig. Mm. That's the finest example, isn't it? So, Gail, now you slept in this castle. Uh, how did you know about that, and, and was it a good experience to actually sleep in, in Castle Reichenstein on the Rhine River? Uh, we found it on the Internet, and actually what you were just saying about the families uh, remodeling it to try and make a go of things, because castles are very expensive to keep up, they got a hotel group in that remodeled the stables into the actual uh, restaurant, eating area, and the rooms. The castle itself is a few steps away up a hill, and they've turned that into a museum. Apparently, the family did live there up until the 1960s. You know, my favorite two castles, as far as interiors go, are Berg Eltz in Germany on the Mosel River and Reifenstein Castle in northern Italy, Reifenstein, just south of... Um, the Brenner, Brenner Pass. Brenner, yeah. As you drive from Munich down to Venice, you will go over the Brenner Pass, and then you come into northern Italy. You pass a town called Vipitino, and there's a castle there called Reifenstein. It has the noble family living there, like the noble family still lives at Berg Eltz, and they put flowers out once a week, and they welcome the tourist, and they make money by charging money to visit it. But these castles... Now that I think about it, my third favorite castle interior is in France on, on the Loire Valley, or no, in Dordogne, called Bainac, and it is still owned and operated by the aristocratic family. And I'll never forget the aristocratic lady of the castle 
actually opens up the little kiosk and sits there and collects, you know, 10 euros from each tourist that visits, and she's earning a living by letting travelers come in and, and visit her castle. But you find these owner-operated medieval castles with the uh, aristocratic family still there trying to make ends meet by welcoming the tourists. Yes, definitely. It was a great experience. I'd like to do it again. Well, Gail, there's uh, no shortage of castles in Europe, that is for sure. Good luck in your travels, and thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the castles of Europe, and I'm joined by Martin Delandovitz, a guide who works at a great castle in northern Wales called Carnarvon. we got Robert on the line in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Hey, Robert, thanks for your call. You're quite welcome, Rick. It's a pleasure talking with you. Do you have some castle story for us? Oh, my goodness. Primarily in Bulgaria, I guess. And I know you've been there many times. That at the Leuschwanstein, uh, naturally, and the uh, Lindehof Castle. And I was just wondering how many castles that the so-called Mad King Ludwig, how many did he build? Any idea? Well, first of all, he's called Mad King Ludwig by us tourists and travelers right. because he spent so much money for his fanciful castles. He was the king of Bavaria, part of the Wittelsbach family. Yeah. And a lot of us underestimate the importance of the ruling families of the middle-sized countries of Europe before the modern countries were united. And for 600 years, the Wittelsbach family ruled the, you know, moderate power of Bavaria. And King Ludwig II, a.k.a. Mad King Ludwig, he was in the Romantic Age. His favorite buddies were composers and poets and uh, Wagner and so on. And he, rather than deal with the uh, complicated politics of the court in Munich, his favorite times were uh, hanging out with his uh, musical and poetic buddies and building fanciful castles with rooms designed and inspired by Wagnerian operas, you know. And, and he grew up yeah. in Hohenschwangau. And above Hohenschwangau in the forest, there was a perfect pinnacle for him to build his castle of his dreams. And he spent, almost bankrupted his country, building these great castles. His first castle, I believe, was... Uh, well, the most famous one, Neuschwanstein. He also mm. built, uh, help me here, Martin, uh, I can't remember Linderhof, Linderhof which Dahl. is a gorgeous castle, and uh, Heron Kimsey, a castle on a lake halfway between Munich and Salzburg. So he built three fairy tale castles, and he was planning to build the most incredible castle. I think it was called Falkenberg on a pinnacle twice as high as Neuschwanstein. Mm. And then one day he was declared insane. And about a week later, he was found face down dead in the lake with his attendant. And uh, there's a big controversy of what happened to the king, mad King Ludwig. But he left. He almost broke the bank by building this Neuschwanstein. But today, it is enriching that corner of Bavaria as all of us travelers go there and pay the big bucks to sleep and eat and tour in that beautiful corner of Germany. Well, you know what amazed me, uh, Rick, is uh, you look at these castles and go in them and get their history. And some of them are only a couple hundred years old, you know. It's, it's amazing with all the history in Europe. I can't get over that. Well, when I was first <laughs> going to Neuschwanstein, uh, Robert, yeah. I was thinking it was medieval because it's pointy. And then I, right. I learned what romanticism is all about. <laughs> and uh, Martin brought this up. But romanticism was the ism of the 19th century. And this is when people were rebuilding or building from scratch castles in a romantic medieval way. And when we look at Neuschwanstein, it's the Disney castle. I mean, if Disneyland's castle was inspired by any castle in Europe, it was certainly Mad Ludwig's Neuschwanstein. When you look at Neuschwanstein, you got to remember, it was built at the same generation as the Eiffel Tower. Very true. And it's Very got true. all the modern uh, technology underneath its fanciful facades. Robert, thanks for your call. Well, you're quite welcome, and I wish you luck in all your travels. Happy travels. Uh, thank you. Angel's on the line from Pasadena, California. Angel, how are you doing? Hey, great, Rick. Thanks for having me on your show. Are you into castles? I love castles. Um, my favorite castle trip 
has actually been on the Rhine River. You know, that cruise from Bingen to Koblenz is dotted with castles, and I actually stayed at the Berg Stalik, which is perched high above the Rhine and gives you magical views of the Rhine River. You know, for years I was uh, helping people try to figure out the best part of the Rhine, and the Rhine goes from Switzerland all the way to Holland, but people got to remember that it's the romantic Rhine gorge that is of interest to the romantic tourist, and that is the area between Frankfurt and Koblenz, and then along that stretch, the very best is what you said, Angel, from Bingen to Koblenz. Right. I think the best overnights are either St. Gore or Bacharach. In my youth, I used to stay in the youth hostel you're talking about. Now I can afford a little guest house in the town, and it's a little more private and a little more comfortable. You don't have to climb up to the top of the mountain to get to your bed. <laughs> I stay in Hotel Kranenturm, and Kranenturm is the Tower of the Crane, literally. It was associated with the castle, and that's where the boats would park, and they would use the crane to pull the kegs of wine off of the boat and porterage it up past some rapids or something like this. And today you can actually sleep in a quasi-castle down in the town of Bacharach if you go to Hotel Kranenturm. Is that right off of the water there? Yes, yeah, right overlooking the water. They've reclaimed some land to make the freeway and the parking lot, but uh, originally the water would lap right up against the walls of Bacharach. And lately I discovered two undiscovered gems that I don't think are on the American radar yet. Um, the Poenary Castle, which is in Transylvania, near the Fagarash Pass, and the Braun Castle, which is, again, in Transylvania, and both have a connection with Vlad Tepes. Now, uh, Angel, I want to talk about the Rhine River in a minute, but let's stay in Romania. So this is Dracula's castle, right? Braun Castle? Braun Castle, yeah. It was made famous by Bram Stoker, um, and it was actually lived in by the Romanian royal family up until, you know, Ceausescu kicked them out. It's supposed that Vlad Tepes did stay there one night, and one of Vlad's ruined castles, which you can hike up to, is the Poenari Citadel, and that's a 13th century ruined castle and, uh, you know, it's a great strategic point, and Vlad's wife actually threw herself off of the mountain from that one. But it's an amazing hike up the mountain and great ruined castle, and I had it all to myself when I went, to be truthful. Now, I've been in the Braun Castle in Transylvania, in Romania, and it's, it's okay. It didn't blow me away. It seems a lot of it has been rebuilt. Exactly. Most in the 20th century because Queen Marie and then I think her son later renovated it as well. But at night, I think it's a little spooky, you know, if you're there on a cold, misty night. And just the positioning of the castle itself is quite nice. Now, Romania, I got to say, doesn't have an overwhelming abundance of charm to attract tourists from the West. So they milk their Dracula legend as much as they can. Consequently, lots of Dracula tours are going to visit the Braun Castle. What guidebook did you use for Romania? I use the Lonely Planet Romania. There's not and that much tourism to keep a lot of guides going for Romania, but were you satisfied with the Lonely Planet Guide to Romania? I, I was, actually, because it gave me great you know, information for the independent traveler. Yeah. And recently, there has been the Brat Guide, which has been published, the first edition for Transylvania. The Brat Guide is good for those offbeat destinations like Transylvania. Did you go to Sigashora while you were there? Yes, I did. You know, and that's uh, Vlad Tepes's hometown. Sigashore is one of my favorite towns in Eastern Europe. And there I was struck by the traditional German communities that survive vividly today in Romania. You know, the Anglo-Saxons were there a long time ago, and there is a large thriving community in that part of Transylvania, uh, Sibiu, which is another yeah. town in 
in Transylvania. I, I think it's such a time warp in part because the metabolism of modernization was slowed way down during the communist time and the German enclaves just kept going about their pre-World War I German ways. And then in modern times, we wake up and find there's German communities in Romania that are arguably more traditionally German than those you'd find in Germany itself. Yeah, you know, Sigishwara, you, you describe it correctly as a magical city, and my godfather, when we visited it together, said that it, this is probably what Germany looked like before World War II. Okay, I'm glad that you can update me on that, because that was my impression from uh, longer ago, and you were just there recently. Yeah. Angel, thanks for your feedback. Thank you, sir. Happy Have travels. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with a castle expert, Martin Delandovitz. Martin, when you're at your home castle in Carnarvon, and you want to leave an impression on your visitors, where do you take them and what do you say? The thing that I, you have to consider, and this is, this is my, my view, castles are the highest demonstration of wealth and power in the secular world. Other great cathedrals and churches, they're built to the glory of God, but castles are built to the glory of men. And you always have to remember this. You are looking at ruins. A building that hasn't had its roof on for hundreds of years is always going to be a mess. The mistake is, and Hollywood helps us in this, we go around believing that they were built as ruins. Well, wake up, kings didn't build ruins as a hobby. And great leaders to this day, Prince Charles, the the Prince of Wales in the future, will go to Carnarvon Castle. Yes. To receive their title. Yes. Princes of Wales have been crowned at Carnarvon Castle from, oh, actually only from 1911. But it is a tradition, one would think. But they choose to go to a castle because, as you said, that's the measure of power, secular power. That that was the great center of power in Wales, and so it remains to this day. But but when you're visiting these castles, you don't have to use the eye of faith a bit. You have to realize there were great demonstrations of wealth and power. They did have plaster on the walls. They did have paint in the plaster. They did have glass in the windows. And that's another thing people say. Did they really... Did they have glass then? I I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard that one. Now, people are happy to walk into churches, chapels like Saint-Chapelle. There it is in the 1240s with its wonderful stained glass. And they go into a castle built at the same time and say, oh, did they have glass then? Well, of course, you've just seen it. It would have been as sumptuous, perhaps, as the churches. Absolutely. Something to keep in mind. As you enjoy castles from Portugal to Israel to Finland, remember, get a guidebook, read a book, get a guide, follow a tour, let those castles be painted in, plastered over, filled with warmth and families and people and struggles, and you can get a little look at life in Middle-Age Europe. Martin Delandovitz, thank you very much. Thank you, Rick.